and this is the first time you're on my show. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. Okay, let's just uh, get through the, some of the the bio. So you're the host of the Adam Carolla Show. In 2011, world record or Guinness Book of World Record, most downloaded. Are we still on that trajectory? Uh, no one's claimed the mantle in so uh, 10 years. It. I still hold it, yeah. God damn. All right. Uh, the next show, I wish I had you when I remodeled the basement, Catch a Contractor. I had a Armenian contractor who should have been under your purview. You should have caught him. Co-host of The Man Show uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Co-host of Loveline with Dr. Drew Pinsky. We've become good friends. I've been on his show. He's been on mine. Author of several books. Uh, I'll only mention the last one. I'm your emotional support animal navigating our all-woke no-joke culture. 2017 documentary with Dennis Prager titled No Safe Spaces. I didn't see where my invitation to participate in that documentary was. Maybe you have some explaining to do. Did I miss anything? Oh, I'm sure you did, but uh, people get it. I've been, I've been around. You've been around. Okay, so I thought we'd start, Adam. I mean, we, I mean I'm perfectly happy to talk about all the woke stuff and all the stuff that's, that upsets us both, which we'll get into. But I also hope to get into some personal stuff. I mean, not deeply personal, but, you know, stuff that drives your, your, you know, what gives you purpose and meaning and so on. But let's start with a grand question. What is keeping you up at night with worry these days? I don't really stay up and worry. Um, I basically am just kind of a fish swimming through water. Um, I spent the beginning part of my life sort of wasting time. I felt um, I was not doing what I was put on this earth to do. I was doing, you know, manual labor and building and, you know, moving dirt around and carrying sheets of drywall and stuff like that. And the second I got from the first half of my life, which is a, you know, very kind of menial blue collar existence into the second part of my life where I was able to create things then I just looked at my job as to get up every day and, and create something. So I, I really have that mindset and mentality. I feel like presidents and administrations and Congress and politics, it's cyclical. It all just kind of comes and goes. You know, it's, it can be interesting, but it's not worth hand-wringing, you know. Um, control the things you can control. And I have a lot of things I can control, so I, I mainly focus on what I can control. You know, I love that, that you used creating because in my next book, which I'm currently working on, in one of the chapters, I talk about how to find the, the ideal job uh, that will, you know, contentment. And one of the things that I argue, and exactly in line with what you said, pick a career that allows you to create. You could be a chef and create. You could be an engineer you know, and create bridges. Uh, you could be a novelist and create wonderful stories. You could be a filmmaker. You could be a scientist and create knowledge. But the the process of uh, creating is, re and I and I hope to pass on those traits to my children. I've often been asked to serve as an academic administrator, and I've always refused precisely because there is little to no creation. And so I really appreciate that answer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little highfalutin for me to think of myself as a, you know, creator or an artist or something of that ilk. But 
when you really distill it down to what it is, is I get up and I'm either working on a book or I'm working on a podcast or I'm working on a stand-up routine or usually working on everything simultaneously as well as mechanical things, things that have to do with, you know, architecture and design and building and things that have to do with the automotive realm, restoring old historic race cars and things like that. So that's what I do. That that's that's and I, and I do it all kind of at once. I don't I don't set aside a day to work on comedy and another day to work on building or architecture. And they, they just kind of all fold into uh, one big creative burrito. Is there, of all the different hats you wear, while they may share the creative impulse, is there one that currently in your life you feel is the one that, you know, gets your juices flowing more than the other ones? Well, I tend to be a little cyclical. Like, you know, I will work on building, design, and you know, home, some home improvement project or some plan or some version of that. And I'll find myself getting deeply involved in that and I'll do it for six months. You know, I built a movie theater in my house. So the movie theater, I'd never built a movie theater before. I, I knew how to do it sort of, you know, from a nuts, uh, not, not from a technological standpoint, but from a design standpoint, building the risers and building out the room and hanging the doors and that kind of stuff. So you take that as an example. I got very much involved with that, and I took a lot of interest in that, and I learned a lot about the different kinds of acoustics and what material you want you know, behind the screen, and it's a different material than is behind where, where the riser is, where you're sitting, which might be a different material that, than's on the walls, like acoustically. So I, I kind of threw myself into that, and then at some point I finished it, and now I can go in there and enjoy a movie, but I'm no longer working on that. I'm working on a car now or sometimes there's a book or sometimes a you know a stand up a stand up special hour long or some version of that so i find myself sort of dipping in going hard and then like i said once the theater's done now i'm done so you're obviously someone who's in the public eye irrespective of which hat you're wearing oftentimes people think that because i mean of course i'm also in the public eye people always think that you know, you're always free of insecurities and anxieties and so on. And maybe you are. It's going to be part of my next question. But I, I asked, uh, I had a, my musical child hero is the lead singer of the stylistics. And through the cosmos, we connected with each other and we became friends and he came on my show. And I asked him, do you get nervous before you, you, you get on stage to sing? And this is the lead singer of the stylistics, one of the biggest soul groups from the 1970s. And he says, I can't even stand straight. My legs are about to buckle. And I thought that that was a very powerful story because I could use it to motivate my students when they're going up in front of a classroom and their hearts are pounding and they're panicking. I say, look, Russell Tompkins Jr. will, will get stressed before. He so do you ever get stressed before a big stand-up comedy routine or any other professional endeavor that you engage in? Well, don't tell your class this, but not really. <laughs> Why is that? Is it just your temperament or is it that you've conquered those insecurities? 
Well, I think we would have to agree that everything is probably a combination of nature and nurture, right? So my nature is, and this, as it applies to this, my nature is I'm pretty detuned. I have just kind of a low resting pulse rate, not because I'm in fantastic cardio shape, but more of a, more of just my wiring. You know, if, 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 a, if I'm standing in the street or on the sidewalk and I'm talking to three or four people and a car goes by and backfires, three or four of those people will jump and I won't. That's just my, my wiring. I don't, I don't have that kind of wiring. So I'm sort of naturally detuned. And then in terms of the, that's the nature. And then the nurture is I've done so, I've spent so much time, you know, on stage with a mic in my hand that it just doesn't bother me anymore. I don't, I don't have strong thoughts about it, but you know, when I was a carpenter, when I was a carpenter, when I was kind of a junior carpenter, once in a while, someone would say, hey, I, I got this really expensive oak stain grade uh, crown molding. I want you to hang it in my study. And I would think to myself, I don't know if I'm really up to that. Like, I, you know, I, it's stain grade. We can't put some spackle on it and paint it. If, if I screw up a cut, it's expensive, blah, blah, blah. And so... I would have a little trepidation about like doing something like that. But later on, as I got more skilled as a carpenter, I didn't have that kind of, I didn't have those thoughts because my skill level was higher. And I have that as it pertains to going out on stage, but I also have a very wide variety of experiences. So I have done many, many speaking engagements, but I've done many colleges with Dr. Drew back in the day, and I've done many live TV shows, and I've done, you know, if you take a look at Dancing with the Stars versus doing a live hit on Tucker Carlson versus doing stand-up in a 2,000-seat theater versus um, versus a multitude of different endeavors. I have such a wide variety of those that nothing really feels intimidating to me because I can connect almost every endeavor to something I've already done. And I think sometimes if you say to a guy who's just been acting his whole life, you know, doing TV shows. Now you have to go out in front of a live audience and do a stand-up routine. That person might be intimidated. And conversely, if you took someone who just does stand-up and you say, now you have to go into this acting role, they might be intimidated. But I've done almost everything so I can move from space to space without that anxiety. It's, I mean... Earlier, I mentioned one of the chapters in my next book as relating to what you had answered regarding the creative process. And, and at the end of your current answer, you referred to, you know, the, ver the variety of endeavors that protects you against feeling insecure. So one of my chapters is titled Variety is the Spice of Life, which is a well-known aphorism. And I link it to all sorts of variety seeking. It could be food variety seeking. It could be tourism variety seeking. In my case, I also link it to intellectual variety seeking. So for example, I'm the type of professor 
who does exactly the wrong thing if I'd like to be, you know, well accepted within my milieu because I don't publish in only one area. I, I don't only speak to fellow academics. To the contrary, I find a problem that interests me and I might publish it in a medical journal or an economics journal or in a marketing journal. It doesn't matter. I don't care about only publishing in peer-reviewed journals. I w I'd like to talk to Adam Carolla and Joe Rogan. That brings me great satisfaction. And so one of the things that I try to argue in the book is that you really can't live a fully enriched life if you're a stay-in-your-lane person, and that's exactly what you're referring to, right? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, one of the things I do that brings me a lot of joy, but it also sort of helps shape me, is I'll race cars. And uh, that is a very silent endeavor. There's really... It does not involve microphones or cameras. It, it, it is, you know, kind of the opposite of stand-up. You know, if you think about stand-up is go out in front of a full crowd at a club and people are drinking and eating and you get the microphone for 80 or 90 minutes. Um, when you get into the race car, it's very silent in terms of just you put earplugs in because the, the sound of the car, the engine, is could possibly damage your hearing. Uh, you put your earplugs in, you pull this balaclava over your head, a, a sock over your head, basically, and then you put a helmet on, and you're sort of blocked off from the outside world. You, you put, you know, fire retardant long johns and a fire suit and gloves and, and everything, and then you strap into this, car that has a six-way harness in it and you're just strapped in like like an astronaut and you just sit there and you, you it's not all racing you get strapped in and you're in your car for 20 minutes half an hour before the race you just have to kind of you have to just sort of go numb at that point or or just sort of be still with yourself you can't get your heart rate going you can't get excited and then at some point it's time, it's time to race. But I found that that endeavor actually spills in the experience of that spills into going out on stage with a microphone that just being able to sort of remain calm in these two extremely different situations. You know, you really couldn't get any different than being in a race car or being on stage. But if you can master both those environments, uh, and when I say master, I don't mean be the best race car driver on the planet or be the best comedian on the planet, but just master your feelings in those environments, then most everything just sort of lands somewhere in between those two. But I'm, I'm glad that you, you, you made the connection between the two endeavors because that was actually the exact point that I was going to make. And I'm going to here give some kudos to Joe Rogan. The first time that I appeared on his show, uh, I think it was the first time. Well, there is something very similar in what I do when I go into the stage as a stand-up comedian or goes into the MMA ring and what you do, Gad, as a you know, public intellectual and professor we can't fake it, right? When you go up on, on, on a show, you know, on a stage, you can't, you're either funny or not, and you're going to get that feedback very quickly. When you go into the arena and, you, and to fight, you can't fake that. When I espouse all sorts of positions that are going to be viewed by many, many people, 
I can't be bullshitting because people are going to call me on it. When I publish a paper, it's going to go through a very rigorous peer review process. There's no, there's very little maneuvering for, for bullshit. So I think your, you know, your racing life and your stand-up comedy life, I think what they also share is an authenticity. You can't fake that stuff. Yeah, well, you will, yes. I mean, obviously, you couldn't go out in a comedy club and fake it, you wouldn't make it three minutes, you know, it just, it, much less, you know, 80 minutes. You, you couldn't, you know, it's funny. I, it's like, you might say you couldn't fake it for 10 minutes. You couldn't fake it for two minutes. Exactly. And it's kind of the same with the car, which is it's, it's, you couldn't fake it for half a lap. You, you, you literally couldn't do it. You either can do it or you can't do it. So I had a doctoral, well, a postdoc, who joined my team several years ago. He's no longer with my team. He's moved on. Uh, his doctoral dissertation was on the evolutionary roots of humor. And so the idea being that humor is a sexually selected trait that serves as a proxy for intelligence, right? So when, when, when women say, you know, I really would like a guy who, who's funny, who's making, who makes me laugh, in a sense, what they are also saying is I want someone who, who has wit, who can be sarcastic, who can make quick observations, who's funny, and therefore I want a mate who is intelligent. So that's part one, which I'll, in a second I'll ask you to comment on. But I tried to link his research with mine. We didn't end up running the study, but I, I, I can't remember if I've discussed this when I came on your show the first time. So I published a paper in 2009 where I looked at the effects of men's testosterone levels when you put them in either a Porsche or in a beaten up sedan. The idea being that their endocrinological systems tracks their social status. So if I put a young male in a Porsche, his endocrinological system blows up. So, and, and we found this by the way, as not surprisingly, but what I wanted to do with him was apply it to comedians. So for example, the idea was that if, if, if Adam Carolla goes on stage and that day his timing is perfect and he walks off stage having been a huge success versus the exact same material delivered another night where you're off, will I be able to detect that in your varying testosterone levels across those two nights? So comment on anything that you'd like from what I just said. Well, I, I think it is interesting that you would equate um, having a comedic sensibility and um, a general intelligence. And you're probably right because if a woman is around a guy, she meets a guy at a bar or a club or anywhere, she's not going to be able to go check his test scores or look for diplomas or any of that. But through conversation, we'll know almost immediately if the person's intelligent by whether they have a sense of humor or not. And I always find it funny when people, the, you know, the people who disagree with me always just call me dumb. And I don't have the credentials to really refute that because I never went to college. Your success in life refutes that, doesn't it? Well, I would argue it does, but it doesn't, it doesn't on paper, you know, or maybe it does on paper, maybe the ultimate form of what it does is on, you know, on paper, but, um, but I always argue, look, you, you can disagree with what I'm saying all you want, but I don't think you can argue that I'm dumb 
because I go out on stage every night and make people laugh. And uh, a lot of it is impromptu stuff. So, you know, it, it always feels like the refuge of, of cowards when they go, um, oh, he's dumb, you know, by the way, which makes them de facto smart for disagreeing with you. But I do I do find it. I do think sense of humor is a is a indicator certainly of intelligence when i think about all the comedians i know you know they're funny but they're they're first and foremost intelligent and then it also makes you wonder or at least it makes me wonder about my childhood because i was always funny i wasn't always successful and i wasn't always smart and i didn't always you know achieve and, but I was always funny and nobody ever really s- thought about it and went, well, the guy can't be dumb. He's funny. They just said he must be dumb because his test scores are so bad and his penmanship is so bad and his reading, you know, he's reading at a fourth grade level in the eighth grade. So he's got to be dumb. And, and I thought, what what is it with adults, faculty, teachers, and even parents that don't get it? You know, when I you know I have a young, I have a teenage son. You know, once in a while, when one of his friends comes by and the guy's funny, I go, "That's a sharp kid." I I don't ask to see his his calculus scores. Right. I don't I don't want to know what his SAT scores are. I go, "That kid's sharp." I I don't I don't understand. It seems pretty. It seems pretty ubiquitous now and i mean in terms of how people apply it and it seems like very no duh but when i was growing up it didn't exist you were loudmouth you were told to shut up and then we looked at your test scores to figure out if you were smart or not well so a couple of points number one i'm here to tell you that some of the dumbest people i know are fellow professors so the fact that you have a huge number of degrees you, you may know a lot about organic chemistry or you may know a lot about some ancient Greek mythology. That doesn't mean that that translates into, uh, you know, high intelligence in other domains. And that's one of the things that I regret so much about academia. And that is that so few professors get out of their lanes, right? As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a quick story. So to, exactly to, to point to exa- what you're saying, uh, I uh, had been invited to speak at Stanford Business School in 2017 which is, you know, you'd argue might be the mecca of academic prestige. And the gentleman who was taking me out the night before, I actually discussed this anecdote in my latest book, uh, not, not the one I'm working on, the one that, that was already published, The Parasitic Mind. Uh, so we go out to dinner and he says, oh, you know, I was looking through your bio and I was doing a Google search and, you know, uh, I didn't know that you were such a, to use his terms, uh, a celebrity. You've been on Joe Rogan and so on. I said, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it's lots of fun. He goes, yeah, well, you know, at Stanford, we don't condone that. I said, well, what do you mean? You don't condone what? He said, well, you know, we don't do research so that it could be sexy enough to appear on Joe Rogan. I said, well, I don't, who said it's an either or? I can publish top peer-reviewed papers and appear on Joe Rogan. Surely you don't think it is irrelevant to appear on a show that has millions of viewers. I mean, think about the number of people who become interested in consumer psychology or evolutionary psychology because they watch me on Joe Rogan. But that gives you the sense of the elitism that you see in academia, whereby, you know, to speak to a mere comedian like Adam Carolla or, uh, you know, Joe Rogan 
is beneath them. I despise this kind of elitism. And so kudos to you for uh, shoving your success up their arses. Well, you know, it, it strikes me as you speak about academia and the professors and, and kind of this bubble. Um, in the mechanical world, your ideas have to be challenged all the time. Uh, and, and by the way, you welcome those, those challenges because it really helps the process, you know. And um, right before I came in here to talk to you, I was at my other shop and there was a, a panel and a door and it needed to be fixed. And, and I have a guy over there who's a world-class fabricator, but he's, a, he's, a, he's an engineer and he, and he has very good solutions to problems, you know. And, you know, I just walked him over to this door and I brought the tape measure and I said, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my solution to fix this problem. And I won't get... I won't get into the nuts and bolts part and the pun of the, the problem, but I have him stand there and I want him to tell me why, what's wrong with my modality, my thinking. What, tell me a better way to do this. And, and, if, and if you agree it's a good way to do it and I agree it's a good way to do it, then it has been double certified by two guys who know what they're doing and we will proceed with this plan because the plan is going to involve you know, buying a sheet of quarter-inch aluminum and having it laser-cut and this, that. Yeah, it's going to cost some money. It's going to take some time, and I don't want it to not work. So you please be vocal and speak up and tell me what's wrong with what I'm doing or how I'm approaching fixing this problem. Um, I don't think in a lot of politics, certainly in politics, but also on college campuses, they don't want those voices in the room. And thus, you take the problem, and the problem could be homelessness, but it doesn't get fixed because they take those voices and they escort them out of the building. Oh, absolutely. Listen, uh, in the parasitic mind, I basically argue that the reason why what I refer to as idea pathogens, postmodernism, cultural relativism, identity politics, biophobia, the fear of using biology to explain human behavior, the reason why these idea pathogens are much more likely to proliferate in some disciplines more so than others, it's because in some disciplines you have a feedback loop called reality, right? So, for example, in engineering, you can't have uh, engineers building uh, bridges using postmodernist physics. In the business school where I reside, you can't have economic models that try to describe reality using postmodernist mathematics because reality has a way to smack you hard with the feedback. On the other hand, if you are in some disciplines in some of the social you could pontificate fully decoupled from reality and that's what allows these idiotic and imbecilic ideas to proliferate because there is no mechanism to inoculate those professors from their stupidity. Well, and then to take it a step further, if you do find anyone who disagrees, then you say they're disagreeing because they're racist, they're sexist, they're homophobic, and now there is no modality for repair, and there's no modality for fixing the problem. So if I, you know, if I took the guy from the other shop and I said, let's figure out how to install this aluminum panel in this commercial door, 
and I was explaining how I wanted to do it. And he said, uh, I disagree. And I said, that's because you're racist. <laughs> how would that work? Yeah. You know, how, how, how would that work in any endeavor? How would a football coach, uh, put in a offensive game plan for that day. And then somebody said, uh, you know, the other team has a great nickel package. I don't think you should be stretching the field. I think you should be throwing underneath because their linebackers are slow. I disagree with your plan. And you called them homophobic. Where would you go from there? Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess that's a good segue uh, to all things woke, because of course that's the, you know, that's, that's, those are the topics that you address in your latest book. And also something that keeps me at night and I addressed in my latest book. So in my case, probably academia is the, the worst place to be an anti-woke activist because that's where all the woke ideas originate from. So you, 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 know, you, should, you should try to live in my shoes for five seconds in academia. Uh, now, in your case, also, I would argue it's almost as bad in that the entertainment world is also somewhat woke central. So I recently had Dean Kane on. Do you know Dean? Yes. So, you know, he's one of the rare guy, you know, Clint Eastwood, yourself, Dean Kane, James Wood. You know, there's a few guys who are, you know, vocal in sort of their anti-woke positions. Uh, has it, I mean, I guess it hasn't affected your career much in that you have a few money, you could do whatever you want. But do you feel that there could have been a different trajectory for you in your, uh, you know, career had you not been as open in your anti-woke positions? Well, first, let me correct you. I have F me money. So F you money is fine, but it's better to have F me money, which is I can actually hurt my own career by saying what I want to say. And I can still keep the light. Yes. Um, you know, it's really hard to try to project and figure out what could have been or how things may have played out. Um, I will say on a, on a concrete level, because, you know, who knows what I've gotten this job or that job. It's, it's, it's a very low percentage town I live in anyway. You know what I mean? So minus any woke or any positions or any thoughts on COVID or anything else, the odds are already stacked against you in terms of, you know, starring in a sitcom or hosting a late night show or whatever, whatever the pursuit is. Uh, I will say, you know, more measurable and more definitively, uh, I make documentaries and none of them have ever been accepted to Sundance. And I have been told by Sundance that they're not fans of mine. Now the documentaries, and again, then the answer could be, well, make better documentaries. Um, if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, out of the five documentaries I've made, the average score with the audience is probably 96 and a half or something like that. So they're very highly reviewed and regarded. So I don't think, and if, and if, you, took at the, if you took a look at the average documentary that gets into Sundance and you distilled that down and looked on Rotten Tomatoes, it would be probably half or two thirds of how my movies are reviewed. So, you know, again, it's not definitive, but it is certainly it's it's a it's a path to dis, to to start to start arriving at a truth that's not just ether and up in your head. 
Um, so from a, from a standpoint of, you know, uh, you know, a return on investment on making documentaries. Well, you make a documentary, you show it at Sundance. Hopefully there's a bidding war, you sell it and then you make money. So I have removed that modality for my documentaries. And so I guess one could argue that it does hurt financially in that department. And you, you could logically argue it is hurt in many other endeavors involving Hollywood as well, but you know, uh, such is life. I'm, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in that. I, I had, I had somebody telling me, uh, yesterday, uh, you know, just put the stupid mask on, you know, you're walking outside or you're at the airport or whatever. Just put the stupid paper mask on, just do it. And I said, I don't want to do it. And they said, why not? Who cares? What's, what's the big deal? And I said, because 10 years from now, when all the data comes in and it's definitive that they definitively do nothing, I don't want to be accounted. I'm going to be counted amongst the sheep that went along with the bad idea. So that's important to me. So I'll take X amount of shit now so that I can look back and laugh at all you people in a few years. And they said, why is that important to you? And I go, it's, it's really all there is. It's, it's, that's, that's, that's life. You know, earlier you had mentioned that your temperament is such that, you know, you don't, you know, you don't get riled up. But in a sense, it's, it's quite interesting that that would be your temperament. I get the feeling, I'm not empirical data, but just intuitively, I think the people who are most irreverent to orthodoxy typically have this, you know, righteous indignation. So even though I think that by disposition, I'm a very, you know, mellow guy, I also have a kind of twin side to me, whereby I go on Twitter and something pisses me off so much that I just, you know, go after the person mercilessly, not because I'm a mean guy or uh, nasty, but because whatever they said has triggered my ire. So in a sense, it's quite remarkable that you're able to, to take the positions that you take, which can lead you to being punished by your peers while having this mellow disposition. So hats off to you. Maybe you should be starting a, a seminar on how to be morally indignant while being calm and having low blood pressure. That would get you a lot of new money. Well, I, I think so. You know, it's not that I don't go on rants or get angry or express myself in very loud ways. It's 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 that I I would kind of argue that it is my detuned wiring that lets me take these positions. Because so had, you're, had you been more in, had you been more engaged, you would you would have felt too much pressure to conform and you know commit to the herd mindset. Yeah, because I think what you're saying is, well, it's interesting that a guy who seems, for lack of a better term. You take a guy who seems low energy or sleepy, why is he up on stage screaming into a microphone when he's not napping? And my kind of assertion is is the napping gives me the energy to go up there and do it. It's not a perfect metaphor, but what I'm saying is is my, my detuned nature is what gives me the ability to step back, look at things, and not really care how I'm judged. Got you. All right. Uh, we've got about uh, 10 minutes left, so let's address some of the topics that probably people would, would want us to address. 
Uh, number one, you live in Southern California. Just to give you the background of my personal background, I lived in Southern California for a few years when I was a, a professor at University of California, Irvine. I've had family in California, in Southern California, since 1984. Prior to COVID, I would spend certainly the summers in California. It's always been the place that I've wanted to permanently relocate to, although I, I've never found a way to do so. But I think seeing the demise of California over the last few years has even taken someone as ardently in love with California as yours truly and made me question whether I should ever maintain that desire to move to California. So what the hell is going on in California, Adam? And do you think that Larry Elder might pull it off? Well, it'd be nice. Larry's a friend. Um, it's very interesting to watch the L.A. Times try to paint him as a black racist. A white supremacist, uh, I believe. Uh, sorry, a white supremacist is, is a black man. Yeah. Boy, if that doesn't show the lengths they'll go to. I mean, it's, you know, CNN has, has got him in their crosshairs and the L.A. Times and first things first. Um, you're CNN, Jim Acosta. You're a journalist. You're supposed to be a journalist. If if Larry Elder and and by the way it, it's also I I I saw your your piece on sort of feminine thinking and gynofascism was an article that Dr. Drew sent me. Look, what Larry Elder thinks about women or thinks about black people is neither here nor there if there's no policy attached to it. Right. So if he has, he may hate women, he may hate black women, he may hate black men. If there is no policy that would be negative toward those groups, then I'm not interested. I'm interested in his other policies involving taxes, regulation, school choice, and things of that nature. So first off, it is insane that a a, a, a place like the LA Times that calls themselves a news outlet just goes after Larry Elder calling a black man racist. I It's mind-numbing to me. I can't believe more people aren't disgusted by it. And it also means I never have to listen to another thing the LA Times ever says about anyone ever. But, and I'm also curious, you're the LA Times. Why are you endorsing candidates? Shouldn't you be reporting on candidates because you endorse Gavin Newsom and then you write hit pieces on Larry Elder and I now don't believe you because you endorse Gavin Newsom. It's it's bizarre what people will do with their reputation. It's and insane you, to me. And you endorse, uh, uh, I mean, if we are going to buy into white privilege and whiteness, you endorse the definition of white privilege when you have a perfectly reasonable and likely very good uh, you know go uh, gubernatorial candidate who is a black man so the the hypocrisy is extraordinary well also california who looks at themselves as sort of the tip of the spear the vanguard of the progressive movement that you know california the nation follows and the world follows um we have never had a black governor uh, it's been over 150 years of having governors, and California has never had a black governor. And the L.A. Times and CNN, who never stop talking about diversity, are attacking the first black 
gubernatorial candidate who has a real chance. So are you for diversity or are you for your version of diversity? And if you're for your version of diversity, then that's not diversity. It's insane that with a straight face, they can say we're all for blacks being in leadership positions, but not Larry Elder because he disagrees with us on, on vouchers. I, 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 I really, what is your job at this point? Really look in the mirror and figure out who's staring back at you. You're not, it's insane what you're trying to peddle to adults. And it's also insane that half the country buys it. So, um, what, are the, yes. what are the numbers right now? Is it, are we, uh, I haven't followed the specific sort of polling. Are we at like a 50 50 chance that Elder might be able to pull it off? Well, what, what are the stats as far as you know? Uh, as far as I know, it's maybe a tick under 50 50, but it seems to be getting every passing day to a, to a coin toss, which, which would be wow. nice. Wow, amazing. Okay, let's talk about our mutual friend that we admire so much. Uh, Joe Biden and his phenomenally talented vice presidential candidate, yes, I'm being sarcastic, Kamala Harris, who, by the way, went to a high school about, you know, 10 minutes from my home where I'm I'm doing the show with you right now. And I played against their high school back in 1981 when she would have been there admiring me in my soccer shorts because I was a soccer star. And so I'm, I'm filled with pride that my homegirl, homegirl literally from my hometown, is now ascended to the presidency because wink wink we probably know that she will be in that role soon let's talk about those two intellectual giants go for it well obviously biden is insanely malleable um i he was elected with the promise of restoring calm essentially so it was basically look uh trump is chaos and you elect me, and we can all take a break from the chaos. Yeah. And then Just he like got... happened in Kabul. That's what happened in Kabul. It's been completely calm since. He's <laughs> right. But then he got he, he he took the microphone and immediately dove into race. And the race just divides the nation more. So we've had more unrest because he won't give the whole race thing a rest. He's never given any of it a rest. This notion of we're just going to restore this nation to what it was and people want to get back to work. And, you know, he's gone headfirst in, into chaos, which is, again, the opposite of what he said he was going to do. Now, as far as Kamala Harris goes... She is the product of what happens when you declare, and by the way, the L.A. Times and CNN would applaud this, I'm going to find the first female black vice president, and she will be. Now, she's way underqualified. She has proven herself to be wildly inept and maybe has some sort of personality disorder, but that's okay because of the color of her skin and her gender. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, and we applaud it. And I said, look, this person is second in command, and the guy, you know, the pilot of the airplane is a little shaky. We need a very competent co-pilot in case something happens to the pilot of the airplane, and they picked a co-pilot based on qualifications that have nothing to do with being a competent pilot. 
So you get what you and and by the way, again, this is this is progress to CNN. This is progress to the L.A. Times or MSNBC. It's insane. You you idiots owe us all an apology. So we have a person in command who may not be in command of their faculties, and then we have the the one the, 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 the least who seems now batshit crazy. She will take his place as the pilot if something happens. What upsets me the most, again, coming from an academic uh, perspective, is that you would think that all of my colleagues, many of whom are trained in psychology and decision-making, that they may be inoculated against this tribal thinking. Well, guess what? They are some of the most irrationally tribal schmucks. Uh, imagine. And that's usually what people don't understand is when I've defended Trump, it's not, I mean, first of all, I'm Canadian, so I truly don't have a dog in the fight. I mean, a direct dog in the fight. But what I do care about is intellectual hypocrisy, moral hypocrisy. So when you have, for example, a public intellectual who I know for a fact agrees with almost every single position that Trump espouses and disagrees with every position that Biden represents, but somehow is viscerally disgusted by Trump, he can't explain why, but Trump is an existential threat and no amount of you know explaining to him could ever get him out of it his hysteria, that's when I lose hope because if these supposed intellectuals can be so easily manipulated by their hysteria, what chance is there for the great unwashed? Yeah, well, I, I'm hoping that the, the intellectuals you speak of, in a way, when you say what chances are there for those, for the, for the great unwashed, I feel like the great unwashed have a much better sense and a, and a much better sort of uh, what they call streetwise. You know, the average guy who works on an oil rig has much more common sense than any of these intellectuals you speak of. And I actually think it's easier to fool the intellectual because they live in this ether of ideas swirling around their head versus the guy who drives the 18-wheeler or works on the oil, oil derrick. Well, I always tell people, I always remind people that uh, of all of the many, many emails that I receive from people who, you know, appreciate my work, though I am much more excited by and proud of emails that I receive from the corrections officer, from the uh, Green Beret, from the uh, trucker, because if I'm able to reach them with my ideas, then I think I'm on the right track. And of, by the way, I seldom receive, although, well, I do receive complimentary letters from professors, but they always write at the end, if you're going to read this on your show, God, please don't mention my name. So they don't even have the testicular fortitude to publicly stand by me as I put my neck on the line. And this is why I appreciate the oil uh, rig guy much more than I typically do the highfalutin professor. Not to, not to denigrate all of my colleagues, but many of them should be the object of our derision. I agree. <laughs> All right. Last question, and then uh, I'll let you go. Uh, so in my next book, I have a chapter on regret, and that uh, one of the ways that you could live a fulfilled life or you've lived a successful life is if you could look back at your life and think that you don't, you don't have much, if anything, to regret. And I talk about the difference between two types of regret, regret due to inaction 
right? I, I should not have cheated on my wife versus regret due to an inaction. You know, I never pursued dancing. That's what I should have become. I should have become a dancer. So for most people, they actually regret an inaction as their biggest regret in life more than an action. So if I ask you right here on the spot, do you have any regrets? And if you care to share any of them, what would they be? The only one that really comes to my mind frequently is I kind of impulsively bought a house in the neighborhood and moved my family into it. I was working on it the whole time and I had this sort of grandiose plan that never really worked out in terms of that. It's kind of, it's a mechanical sort of regret. Um, other than that, I, I don't really have them, which doesn't mean I shouldn't have them. It just means it's, it's not, it's not a world that I, I live in. I sort of put I'm very fast to turn the page and get on to the next thing. I, 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 if somebody said, <clears throat> you know, if somebody said, uh, I, uh, I borrowed your truck. I got into an accident. I can't come into work. I would say, are you okay? And if they said yes, I'd say next subject. I, I don't want to know what happened. I'm not interested in who was at fault. I, I, I really, it's, it's, it's a waste of time for me. So I'm very, very much into that, which uh, it, it, it rubs people the wrong way sometimes because, you know, my assistant will call me sometimes and he'll go, uh, such and such is canceled. The guy's not coming in for an interview. He doesn't feel, I'll go, it's fine. What's next? And he'll go, he says he's sick. And I'll go, okay, I get it. I, my, I heard you say he's not coming in and we're not doing this. So, what is so the next pragmatism can come across as though you're being cavalier and dismissive, right? Right. It it comes across that way. Uh, but what I'm really saying is, is next problem. Life is short. Let's move on. Got you. Uh, let's not do this every four years. Thank you so much for coming on. Stay on the line so we could say uh, goodbye offline. Thanks again for coming on, uh, Adam. My pleasure. Thank Cheers. you for having me.